Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. It's good to welcome back Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the Director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. How are you? I am great, Ed. Great to be back. Good, good. Yeah, and great to see you again. Thanks very much for filling in, running the show last month during Climate Week in New York. As you know, I was unfortunately unable to be there. Great show, I would say to everyone who's listening, if you haven't heard that back. And, and let me just say, I underappreciate how hard it is to be the host uh, <laughs> until I tried doing it. So, you know, kudos to you, Ed, because you do an amazing job. And it's not easy, actually. It's much easier to be the guest. That's very kind, very kind of you to say. It's, uh, do you know what? It's not that hard. It's fun when I'm talking to great, interesting, uh, thoughtful people like you, and also like our other guest we've got on the show today, who is Robbie Orvis, the Senior Director for Modeling and Analysis at the Think Tank Energy Innovation. Hi, Robbie, how are you? Hey, Ed, I'm great. Happy to be back uh, with you and Amy. Yeah, great to see you again. And thanks, both of you, for coming on the show. So look, what I want to start with this time, and what I think we kind of need to start with, is something we don't talk about very much, actually, on the Energy Gang, which is oil. We've all, of course, been watching the terrible events in the Middle East, and they've raised a new round of concerns about oil and energy security. I was just looking at the price of oil. Benchmark Brent crude was about $91 a barrel. That's about 6 or $7 higher than it was two weeks ago. And there's been a couple of other things in the news that are relevant to this issue of oil and global oil markets. There was a very interesting thing that came out just last week, which is news from the US Energy Information Administration, which said that US oil production had hit a new record high at 13.2 million barrels a day. That beats the previous record that was set in early 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Pretty interesting now, if you think about the US in global terms, the US is now actually a net exporter of oil and oil products. Important to qualify that with the word net. It's still importing quite a lot of oil and also exporting a lot of oil and oil products. And it's probably implications of that are something we should get into. But as I say, on a net basis, the US is a oil and oil product exporter to the tune probably of about 2 million barrels a day or thereabouts, maybe a bit less this year. Another thing that's going on this week is by a kind of grim coincidence, as I say, given the events in the Middle East, it's exactly 50 years this week since the Arab members of OPEC imposed their oil embargo on the US, October 19th, 1973, and began a series of production cuts that sent oil prices soaring, oil prices pretty well quadrupled in the month that followed that decision. And that was what we now call the first oil shock of 1973. 74. Amy, just thinking about maybe some of that history, looking back over 50 years, when you compare what happened back then in 1973 and the huge impact that the world suffered from that oil shock, are there similarities you see between what's going on now in 1973? Or is it a very, very different situation? I think what makes it different is that um, people kind of forget there was at that time, since 67, this constant threat uh, about creating an oil weapon. And that was in the rhetoric of the Middle East, starting with Egypt, and uh, was you know part of what Egypt was seeking uh, when it made its surprise attack on Israel in 1973. And then there were all kinds of, which you could kind of, should be a hesitation or a, a, a piece of uh, a warning to diplomats today, 
um, and, and, and others, you know, who, who trade commodities. Uh, because one of the things that happened in 1973 is the United States was trying not to be too public in its aid. And so they had a whole schedule where they were going to bring munitions to Israel, badly needed munitions to Israel under the cloak of dark. Uh, so the plane would land uh, at night and no one would know. And of course, logistics got messed up and the plane landed in daytime. Um, and then over time, over the next couple of days, Nixon decided on October 19th to go public with this $2.2 billion aid package for Israel, which he presented as needing to counter uh, the finance that was coming in to the Arab world from Russia, well, then the USSR. And that's what's mushroomed and then blew into uh, first Libya, announcing that it would put a full embargo against the United States. And then uh, the next day, Saudi Arabia announcing it would embargo all its oil uh, that it was selling to the United States. And so it wasn't like this out of the blue, like no one could see it coming. I think that's one interesting thing about the history. But the other thing is, you know, we've learned a lot since 1973. And whereas there really wasn't a lot of alternatives, there wasn't strategic petroleum reserves, uh, and there wasn't alternative energy in the way there is today. So the difference today, I think, is that oil is, to use an economist term, less inelastic than it used to be. In other words, you know, in 1973, there was no way to move your vehicle around without oil. Like there were just very few uh, ways. Oil was used in the electric power sector in a big way. That's no longer true in the United States, but also worldwide, a lot less oil is used in the power generation. So we've made a lot of progress in decoupling economic activity from physical oil. And now today, you know, we've got, you know, electric cars on the lot here in the United States. You can, if you don't want to go out and fill up your car with gasoline, you can have Amazon, you can hit the button and have Amazon bring you your groceries or your uh, staples to your house. Um, and so we just have a lot more tools uh, if we were to decide that, you know, there's an oil crisis and we're going to stop uh, using oil. And then commuters, at least for some segment of the population, commuters have the option um, if their employer agrees to not commute and work from home. So. Uh, so it's just a really different uh, complexity to how we use oil today and what our options are to reduce our oil use. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And so what used to be thought of as the oil weapon, this idea that the US and other Western economies could be hit really hard by the use of oil restrictions on oil supplies, increasing oil prices as a instrument of foreign policy that weapon doesn't really exist so much in the same way these days. It's certainly less effective than it used to be. I think less effective than it used to be. And I, I mean, I don't want to understate it. I mean, it was absolutely dislocating um, when Russia cut off natural gas supplies to Europe and there was some question about what was going to happen with you know, Russian oil coming to market. But there was these things that the Europeans could do and did do. You know, A lot of Germans installed batteries to go with their rooftop solar the European Union announced new, more ambitious targets for renewable energy, some of which has been implemented. Even here in the United States during the heat wave in California, you know, batteries were six or seven percent of the marginal supply. And as we all know, you know, supply and prices are set at the margins. So we do have these uh, things. And of course, today, not to take away any steam here, but the United States is a major exporter of energy. 
it's not just the numbers you cited at the top of the show, Ed, where I've seen months where we're exporting 13 million barrels a day or more of combined crude oil and products. Our crude exports at one point, I think, were as high as 6 million barrels a day. And, and what that means is, at least for the United States, is that we, if, if suddenly there was like not enough fuel here in the United States, a lot of that fuel that's being exported would, would be, we might have to pay a slightly higher price here in the United States, but that oil would remain in the United States. You know, part of what happened uh, a summer ago, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before, was that uh, Europe was paying that higher price to get fuel and therefore a lot of gasoline and diesel and so forth. Uh, left our shores and went and and went to the international market so that Europe could buy supplies. So the United States is in a sort of a better position today, but the whole globe is affected when there's conflict across the globe. And there are a lot of complex issues. So Robbie, how do you think about this when you think about these questions of energy security and the oil weapon and the vulnerability of consuming countries to higher prices? Um, what's your view? Yeah, I mean, I mostly agree with what Amy said. I think it's interesting that on the one hand, we do have all these other options. We don't really burn hardly any oil products for power generation anymore. We are at the beginning of the curve, right, for electrifying the transportation fleet. So we well, we have options, but they're not, they're not widely deployed and it's hard to kind of get them out there quickly. Um, and we've seen uh, that despite oil production being as high as it's ever been in the US, we still are subject to, you know, if OPEC wants to cut production, we're going to, we still have to pay higher prices for oil. Maybe there's a little bit less of a, a supply imbalance because of the size of the US uh, production and export market. But, you know, we're still subject to price volatility. And so that's kind of, while all this other stuff has happened, there's still like, we're still part of the global market. And I think a related area kind of touching on what Amy was mentioning with regards to Europe um, is there's another kind of global energy market now, which is the natural gas market, which didn't really uh, exist 50 years ago at all. And so that you, you've kind of seen now, I think Europe shows an interesting example of how international energy markets can be used when there's uh, disasters that happen or crises that happen that force countries and regions to immediately reevaluate their kind of their energy consumption and how they can realign. So gas and oil are are to some degree linked. So I I think a lot has changed. Obviously, we have very different technologies, and that, but some of the same forces uh, that were around 50 years ago are still around today. And if a lot of you know, to Amy's point of if OPEC and a lot of the producing countries decided to embargo or significantly cut production for the U.S. Uh, some of the impact would be mitigated, but not all of it. It would still be pretty, pretty significant. Well, in Iran today, just to to make your point, um, Iran today called on an oil embargo on Israel. You know, one doesn't think that the politics today uh, would lend itself to that. You know, Saudi Arabia's policy to date has been to really try to damp down volatility. They, you know, they have kind of a, a price range in mind and and they've tried to opportunistically adjust, make announcements and adjust their production at times when the market technicals to be, you know, sort of a commodity trader, you know, at these pivotal points when the algorithms might put a lot of people in the market or out of the market, uh, they try to chase those algorithmic traders out of the market through policy and through a a very well-timed, brilliant statements by uh, the oil minister there. So question is, when the world moves into sort of a more of a 
crisis diplomacy. And when, uh, as everybody knows, you know, once there's a shooting in the Middle East, uh, it really does have a pretty instantaneous effect on people's calculations about oil price. And if every country or every buyer of oil feels like they're just going to have just a little bit more, I mean, one of the big things that could happen in the United States is if every American drives with a full tank instead of a half a tank, apparently most of us drive around with a half a tank. Um, so if we run, even if we drive around with three quarters of a tank, because, you know, we think the gasoline price might go up, that can have a huge impact temporarily on demand. So if you multiply that across the globe, you know, just the fact that everybody's watching these images, you know, on top of the fact that we all know it's the 50th anniversary of the oil embargo, um, you know, it can really push the price up just psychologically. Right. And also the geopolitical context is pretty different, right? That relations between US and Saudi Arabia are broadly speaking good. Our relationship's pretty tight. Relationships between Saudi Arabia and Israel are much warmer than they were back in the 70s. Same is true for the UAE and Israel. So, Robbie, I want to go back to something you were talking about. You talk about, as you say, oil's a global market. The United States is integrated into a global market. So when you think about the significance of that statistic of record oil production being achieved, it's kind of, it seems to me that it's sort of partly a benefit to energy security in the sense that if the US is producing a lot of its own oil, the kind of the macroeconomic impact of an oil shock, much higher oil prices, is not so damaging for the US economy because the US is not seeing a flow of resources out of the country to pay for oil imports. But the distributional effect inside the country can still be massive. And it, effectively, what happens if you get a higher oil prices, it's a redistribution of wealth away from oil consumers, which is all Americans, everyone who drives, anyone who buys anything that's driven around in a truck and so on, and wealth is distributed from them and to the oil producers, obviously people concentrated in a handful of states, particularly in Texas. And clearly when that happens, those are serious impacts on the people who lose out as a result of those higher prices. And so, you know, that's still a problem, it seems to me, in terms of energy security if people are made worse off by higher prices. And that's something which suggests that, in a sense, there's not really an answer to energy security in producing more oil, however much you produce. Ultimately, you're still part of that global market and subject to the impact of changes in that global market. What you really need to do if you want to be secure in terms of oil is stop using it altogether wherever you can. And so it means driving an EV where that's possible. Absolutely, public transport, using different modes of transport, not flying so much, whatever it might be, it's only really on the consumption side that you actually find energy security, not on the production side. Do you think that's right? Absolutely. And I think that point is often lost, at least over here in, in DC, where there's always talk of, we have to produce more oil, we have to produce more oil. But so long as it's a global market and you have a huge cartel that can control a really significant amount of production and they're the, they can set the marginal price. So long as we're using oil, that's a threat that's out there. And yes, if we really want to become energy independent, energy secure, whatever you want to call it, you have to get off of those things that, you know, that other countries can manipulate markets around. So today that's oil. I think it's one interesting thing looking forward is like what happens if we start exporting a ton of natural gas like we're planning and 
what that means for the domestic natural gas market. We still use a lot of natural gas for power generation and obviously for heating our homes. So that's kind of more of a long-term question. But yeah, I mean, the most energy secure you could be is to not be subject to global commodity markets with really large players who can manipulate market prices. Right. It's been pretty funny, I've thought, looking at the response to this news about US oil production hitting a record. doesn't seem to have been part of the political debate at all. It's kind of obviously Republicans don't want to talk about it because they're saying, oh, President Biden's killing the oil industry and it's kind of, you know, hurts their narrative if you see US oil production booming. But the Democrats don't want to talk about it either because they're all about, oh, it's the energy transition and we're moving away from oil. And so it's kind of embarrassing for them to see that actually US production is thriving. And of course, absolutely true during the Obama administration as well. President Obama very much focused on climate policy and very keen to accelerate the energy transition wherever he could. US oil production absolutely rocketed under his, the real kind of boom, boom days of the shale industry, US tight oil industry, that was all during the Obama administration. So yeah, as you say, it's a... Well, during um, just a few years ago, when COVID was early days, we had negative natural gas prices. I mean, right, but we're not turning around and ascribing credit for that to anyone in particular, right? There's a lot more to it than just uh, an, an administration's policy, of course. Well, let's not forget that President Trump made a diplomatic agreement with OPEC to try to stave off the crisis of our having too much oil. And there was like, a no one could find enough storage to store. So yeah, these kind of issues swing in a lot of directions. You know, I always tell people, uh, I seem like a really unimportant person um, until there's an oil crisis. And then I've been to every single White House because there's always some oil thing that happens, right? So uh, it, it, it just is the nature of the, of the commodity. And but and I think you really make a really strong point. So I quote my last chapter in my book, Oil, Dollars, Debt and Crises, which is that we do have these repeating crises. Uh, let's hope this one doesn't spread to the banking system, which, it, you know, kind of did with interest rates a couple of months ago. So let's hope we don't re- have to revisit that same kind of problem. But the back chapter of my book talks about how the only real way to get out of this paradigm, with all due respect to the Saudis trying to do it as a a supplier, is to decouple the economy from oil. And the only way to do that is to address demand, whether that's getting us in different kind of vehicles, whether that's looking at heat pumps or other kind of technologies that move us away from oil in the building sector. You know, there are a lot of technologies that are really available today that were not available in 1973. So we're in a really different place. But as Robbie says, it takes a long time to implement, but implementing now so that we're not in the same place in three to five years, because we're in this thing where it happens repeatedly, we should stay the course, stay the course. You know, I, I like to tell the story that, you know, maybe Jimmy Carter's solar panel shouldn't have been taken off the White House. Uh, by Ronald Reagan. You know what I mean? Like, like, there'd still be a solar panel there and you could just maybe update it with a more updated solar panel, but the installation would be there. So, you know, it's good to stay the course. Yeah, that is a great point. And certainly changing energy policy dramatically with every swing of the political pendulum is not good for anybody. As you say, it's good to have consistency. Energy is a classic long-term business you spend many years, decades sometimes developing projects. And once you've built them, they can be in operation for decades. So trying to kind of take that long-term view to take a clear line into the future and say, this is where we want to get to. 
and we're going to head steadily in that direction rather than swinging massively around from one side to the other um, with each kind of turn of the electoral cycle. Yeah, that would be a really good thing. Are you, you're laughing, Rob, because what, you, you feel like that's impossible. Oh, you just, you know, you just draw a straight line through it. <laughs> if you're if you're an analyst, it's, uh, it's easy. you know, predicting what year the market's going to go up and go down. Uh, there's other, you know, there's other kinds of modeling. Yeah, but I, there's so many times so you just see someone put a straight line through something that shouldn't have a straight line through it. I want to move on in a moment just before we do just to quickly um, touch on this question then of limits of presidential power and how presidents get praise and blame for things they didn't really deserve, often in, in either direction. Given those kind of constraints, what should presidents be doing to try and set energy policy on the right course? Amy, what do you think? Well, I think that oftentimes presidents fall in the trap of trying to use uh, international diplomacy with suppliers, and that the stronger tool is to you know, really stick with science. So big packages in research and development, big packages for alternative energy. You know, there's always this, you know, oh, will the U.S. government pick the wrong winners? But, you know, President Obama famously under the stimulus package of 2009 put a lot of money into utility scale solar in the United States. Uh, That has really paid out. In a lot of states, it's brought lower electricity prices. Um, It's got a lot of long-term potential proving out that you could use solar uh, at, at a larger, you know, larger scale. It, it built the momentum that was continued by the private sector and, and to this day. So, you know, the question is, you know, where do we go next? Biden administration, you know, has picked the car industry. Again, good choice, in my opinion. Uh, and as I think we're going to discuss later in the show, you know, what about the hydrogen hubs, the $7 billion of hydrogen hubs, you know, again, could be very promising. Um, for heavy industry, especially. I, I just think that that's really what the power of the presidency is, is to really try to inspire the nation in the sort of moonshots for energy and then try to do it in a way that'll stick through the next election cycle and the election cycle after that. Um, so again, I think one of the things this Biden team has done right is that when you look at where the awards have been for new manufacturing, and for the hydrogen hubs and so forth, they're all across the country, which one would hope uh, would make the program popular with uh, American citizens, no matter what side of the aisle they sit on. Amy's got it dead on. And I think, you know, to consider the, the shale revolution, right? That was a joint initiative with the US government. And to our whole conversation today, I mean, part of the reason we've been able to decouple part of the economy from oil is the incredible technological progress that's been made in uh, shale gas as well as tight oil, right? I mean, that's a big part of the U.S. production. Uh, and that that is a byproduct of, you know, joint public-private research. And again, to Amy's point, you know, policy can be used to create the right investment environment to, to grow those new technologies. So EVs is one, as Amy said, President Obama made a lot of progress on solar and also the um, stimulus included a lot of money for efficiency. Um, we've seen enormous energy intensity improvements in the manufacturing sector, largely leveraging the the funds in the recovery bill. So, you know, the government has, we typically look at it as kind of three prongs. There's research and development programs and funding to support that. 
there's incentives or kind of setting the market up to drive the technology out, for example, some of the tax credits in the IRA. And then eventually you get to the part where you can performance standards once the technology is kind of commercialized to, to move it more fully into the marketplace. And those three prongs for kind of a cohesive uh, energy policy that, you know, lowers costs for consumers ultimately and improves energy security. When you choose Wood Mackenzie, you choose a true partner, which brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research and analytics that you need to succeed in the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years, and in the past decade we've added a wide range of additional capabilities in power and renewables. The energy transition is the biggest change we've ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted business models and are creating a new energy landscape. In the 21st century, electricity will come to dominate the energy mix. Navigate these changing energy markets with Wood Mackenzie as policy, regulations and technology continue to evolve. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in this fast-moving industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. EVs, we've been talking about a little bit, are certainly, you could say, part of that strategy and very much an initiative that the Biden administration is supporting. There's been some very interesting developments in EVs this year in terms of in terms of standardization of the connectors used for charging EVs. We had Hyundai and Kia this month became the latest car manufacturers to say that they're going to use the NACS, that's the North American Charging Standard, which was developed by Tesla, as connectors for their cars in the US and Canada. And those two companies are now joining most of the other big automakers, uh, Ford, GM, Honda, Nissan, Mercedes, Jaguar, Volvo. They've all made uh, similar announcements already this year. So it looks like there's been this battle of competing connection standards for EVs. It looks like that battle is coming to an end. It's been a bit like uh, VHS versus Betamax. If you're old enough to remember that, you may need to ask your parents about that one. Or maybe to pick a more contemporary analogy, it's been like um, Apple phones and the lightning connectors and Android phones with USB connectors, but much more significant than that because it's partly about much more expensive infrastructure and partly because the whole kind of way that charging works and all the um, IT that goes into charging and the way that you can build other services onto the basic charging and the way that you pay for your charging and so on, all of that is very much tied up with the connector. And so it's been very significant to see all these other companies fall into line and really a great kind of win for Tesla, very much a vindication of Tesla's decision about 10 years ago to develop that standard and to use it as their common connector for all of their cars. And you know they led the way on that. And now the rest of the industry in North America is falling into line. So as I say, big win for Tesla there. Robbie, as you look at this, what's the significance of it, do you think? I think it's hard to overstate how significant it is. And it's just wild to me that a year ago, we had none of the other auto manufacturers were going to use Tesla chargers. And here we are nine and a half months into uh, this year. And they're all, by the end of the year, they're basically all going to be committed to using the Tesla supercharger, the NACS connector. So, you know, that's just kind of interesting, but it's so important for a few reasons. So we know from, uh, there's so many studies out there that one of the main concerns for prospective EV buyers is the availability of charging, where they know there's going to be a charger available, they can charge their car quickly, it's not going to be broken. And there have been a lot of stories about some of the other 
charging networks, most of whom are operating the CCS standard, you know, people pull up, the charger's broken, it doesn't work. I can anecdotally, that's been my experience in a lot of places. It's hard to figure out. And so having all of the auto manufacturers align on a single charging standard that's, you know, demonstrably reliable, all of the things you read talk about how great the Tesla supercharger network is, the they're in good places, there's lots of them, they are reliable, they work, you just plug it in, you don't have to scan your credit card or sign up for a new account. And so it's going to really help, I think, address some of the concerns from people who are maybe considering an EV but are on the edge because they don't believe that they'll be able to charge their car when they need it. And so this is going to open up you know, 12,000 superchargers across the U.S., and we'll align all of the automakers and uh, almost all of the automakers on having the same port plug-in going forward. So uh, I think it's a huge deal for EV adoption and overcoming some of the concerns for prospective EV buyers. I think it's a huge deal for Tesla. I think they're going to make an enormous amount of money from this down the road. And of course, this now allows them to access some of the $7.5 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law where they a requirement was that the charging standard be kind of uh, o- open sourced. So uh, Tesla will say they were always planning on doing that, but I think it's uh, interesting of the uh, the timing of that. And one could argue that perhaps the infrastructure law was quite successful then in, in helping accelerate the charging infrastructure network in the US. So uh, I think it's a really big deal uh, and could really help uh, accelerate EV adoption over the next decade or so. Yeah, that is really interesting. That's one of those things, as you say, when you put it that way, just thinking about how fast the change has been, when we sort of look back on 2023 and its significance in the world of energy, that's probably one of the first things we're going to think of, right? It's just how quickly we've been- Nothing moves that fast yes. in the world of energy, yeah, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, good point. So Amy, what do you think? I know the availability of EV chargers is a cause that's very dear to your heart. We've discussed that on the show a couple of times in the past. This is something you've had very practical difficulties with in not being able to charge your vehicle. What do you make of this change? Well, let me just, uh, uh, as you know, as everything's a personal journey for me. So I recently took a road trip with my husband because we were having in my side of the family a cousin's reunion. Not going to say how many years I've been married, but let's just say it's, you know, multiple double digits. And so uh, for those who are listening today who are part of a couple, you can appreciate the fact that you're driving with someone and they make a pronouncement that is incorrect, but is in your field of expertise instead of theirs. And so my husband, I don't remember the context, but he made some pronouncement that EVs were definitely not going to catch on. And maybe we shouldn't have bought an EV. And, you know, he's like going down this pet EV pathway. Right. And, um, and I say to him, you know, that's really not true. They're actually, the debate is whether or not you know, the United States, like other places, could hit the technology S-curve and EVs could start to catch off. I know that, you know, the news is reporting that this month there are EVs on the parking lots of all the big dealers. But, you know, it doesn't mean that the whole trend is off. All it would take is one oil cri- one good oil crisis, right? And so we're arguing. And then we say, and he says to me, you know, EVs are like 0.5% of cars in the United States. And I say, that is totally not true. And so I'm forced to Google the statistics. It's like a four-hour drive. Like, I have to be right. Okay? So I look up the statistic, and I just want you to know 
Thank you, California, because they have hit the spot, the moment in time where one in every four new cars sold in California is an EV. And then I was able to show him the correlation between that and how many charging stations there are in California, right? And and then we then we got an argument about what's the next state up, right? So uh, just for reference, uh, the number of public charging stations in California is um, I'm doing the math in my head is five times uh, the number of public charging stations in New York, which is the next um, highest state uh, in our metro area. Um, and then following that is Florida and Texas, which are not too far behind. So, um, but my whole pitch to him, uh, which, which thank God uh, shut him up, um, was that California was farther ahead and that they could really reach the S curve and that Gavin Newsom's announced, we're not selling any new IC engines by 2035 thing was not going to turn the state asunder, that they might be able to make it. This sounds like a great discussion. I feel sad that we haven't got your husband on here. T- and anytime he wants to come on and have this argument you yeah, know, in right. front of a yeah, microphone, yeah, yeah, he's exactly. very welcome. <laughs> right. No, that, yeah, that is. Um... I told him to stay in his lane, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> Indeed. So last thing I want to talk about today, you um, mentioned this earlier, Amy, but this um, these hydrogen hubs that the administration's been talking about, this seems like a very interesting development. As is well known, the Biden administration is very supportive of the development of low-carbon hydrogen, and there's quite a lot of money being put forward, both in the um, bipartisan infrastructure law of uh, 2021 and then the Inflation Reduction Act of last year to try and support the development of basically an entirely new industry in low-carbon hydrogen in the US. And what we had last week was the Biden administration announced the seven hydrogen hubs that will share $7 billion in funding which is intended to accelerate the development of the industry. And the hubs are being spread in a number of different places around the country. There's one in the Pacific Northwest, one in South Texas, one in Appalachia, and so on, really covering uh, basically the whole of the US. And the idea is that the $7 billion of government money will catalyze more than $40 billion of private sector investment. And the idea is of having these hubs sort of located in uh, single locations is that that makes it easier to share particular infrastructure and probably also helps develop a skills base of people who are working together in the industry and that'll help to bring costs down faster. The idea is that the hubs will produce more than 3 million metric tons of low carbon hydrogen every year and that's about a third of the goal that the US has for clean hydrogen production by 2030. And of course, as always with the Biden administration, and when they talk about uh, investment in energy and the energy transition, there's a lot of emphasis based on jobs. And they say that these hubs will create tens of thousands of good paying jobs. So, Robbie, maybe start with you on this. You saw all these announcements, um, saw what the administration is trying to do by uh, naming these hubs, as I say, spread across the country. What do you make of what they're doing? First of all, I think it depends on who you talk to. Uh, I was at the Deploy 23 conference a few weeks ago and different folks from the Department of Energy presenting on kind of the their vision for hydrogen. And it's interesting, even at the same agency, the vision is completely different depending on who you talk to. One, one person talked about, you know, it's almost like you're going to pour hydrogen into your milk for breakfast in the morning. 
And then on the other end, there's the, you know, it's a niche product. We're going to, we need to use it for the only the applications where we need it. Uh, and then, you know, the whole spectrum in between. So I think it's just interesting, kind of the different vision, depending on who you, who you speak with or who you hear from. Which I guess is indicative of an industry that's still at its very early stages. It's just, we don't really know how the hydrogen industry is going to develop, right? And so it's pretty natural that people, even in the administration, would have quite a wide range of views of how, how it's going to play out. Right. That makes makes sense. And so I think, you know, I think big, big picture, kind of building off of what we were talking about earlier, kind of, you know, what is the administration's uh, role to play with energy policy? Something like the hydrogen hubs or the direct air capture hubs is a great example of kind of, you know, targeted R&D and support for public-private investment. Uh, and so I think big picture hubs are a good thing in helping to scale the technology. I think the devil ultimately will be in the details, and I know we'll come back to this in a bit, which is what will qualify both for the hubs, but also for tax credits in terms of green versus blue hydrogen. And again, even going down a level further, the type and how the green hydrogen is produced, the demand side also, where it's used and what it's competing against and displacing. Um, so I think that it's still a little bit remains to be seen, you know, how it will ultimately play out and how successful it would be, I think, as a first step, having hubs to help facilitate that early stage investment and in, in improve investor confidence is a good is a good thing and helps grow technologies. But I think there's a lot that we still don't know about how these will be used and what will happen that will ultimately, you know, shape the narrative or how successful they were. So the two hubs that really caught my attention, Ed and Robbie, uh, were the California hub, which has got Amazon as a partner. And Amazon as a partner sort of supposedly, one would hope, solves the who's going to use the hydrogen question um, because that hub is aiming towards putting the hydrogen in heavy trucking and port operations. And, you could, you know, Amazon's made these commitments for, you know, reducing emissions all the way through to scope three emissions, that is not only their own shipping, but also in the products they sell. And so uh, I do think they're looking at marine as one area, and that is an area where there aren't a lot of solutions. So hydrogen is an interesting solution. Uh, Their partner is Air Products, which is a company that's experienced in moving around hydrogen and other difficult gases. So, and then the other one that really caught my eye as well, is the Exelon Constellation uh, Midwest Hub, which is aiming again to take nuclear energy to make hydrogen, which is a DOE pet project. They're very into nuclear and green hydrogen, or I guess it's pink hydrogen. Sorry, I got my color wrong. And that, again, aim is to try to feed that hydrogen into the steel and glass industries that are local to where that hub is going. So I've worked on doing hydrogen hub analysis back before hydrogen hubs were actually being awarded. And and together with governments, uh, my work on uh, hydrogen for the state of California would sort of give me a thumbs up on uh, on the uh, California hydrogen port operations trucking uh, question. So so I, I do think, you know, the question is, you know, which of these hubs could be the most successful? You know, Robbie's correct. Just because they're announced doesn't mean they 100% get off the ground. So the devil's in the details for, you know, how these projects might move forward. But I do think from talking to industry and participating in roundtables and so forth, that the closer a project is to being having integrated partners, and by that I mean going all the way from the upstream 
of uh, how we're going to produce the hydrogen to the how we transporting the hydrogen to who's buying the hydrogen. So vertically integrated. Uh, the, I think right now those projects have the greatest a chance of success, that those are the ones that interest me. Yeah, I do 100% agree with that. I think you're absolutely right to put that focus on the question of demand. Of who's actually going to buy this hydrogen? Who really wants it? It always seems to me, you know, my line about hydrogen is it's a solution in search of a problem. So much of the interest and effort that's going into it is about people who are very keen to produce hydrogen and they see it as a way for companies to be able to participate in the energy transition, providing a low carbon solution. There seems to be a lot less interest from the people that ought to be buying the hydrogen in actually spending money on it, and in particular on spending money on what's often going to be a higher cost solution, sometimes a much higher cost solution relative to either the potentially high carbon technology they use at the moment, or sometimes even compared to other low carbon technologies. So yeah, I think that's the real issue. And when I think about what's it going to take for these hubs to succeed, I do think finding uses for the hydrogen is going to be absolutely critical. And I think, as you say, you know, it's not that there are no potential uses for low carbon hydrogen. I think that uh, markets that currently use it, uh, use hydrogen, markets like fertilizer production, the refining industry, some other industrial uses, they're definitely potential customers for it. I think that, as you say, heavy trucking where I'm still pretty skeptical about battery electric vehicles really working. Um, you know, battery heavy trucks seem like a problem because of the power weight issues. And charging, and charging a battery heavy and truck. And charging, yeah, exactly, exactly. So kind of long, long haul heavy trucks, perhaps fuel cells with hydrogen are going to be the solution there. It's possible, as you say, marine, we don't have a lot of other great options for shipping fuel. Maybe something hydrogen based is going to work there. So there is potential but I still think that's not nearly kind of worked through enough. And I think if you really want this low carbon hydrogen industry to work, that question of where the demand is, is something people have to put a lot more effort into. Sorry, Robbie. Well, just, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I was just looking at this, these numbers yesterday. We have a lot of hydrogen production and the Department of Energy's goal is 10 million metric tons per year of clean hydrogen, blue, blue or green. The amount of hydrogen produced today from steam methane reforming is around eight and a half million metric tons. And the rest of the demand for hydrogen is byproduct hydrogen, which is, means it's produced as a result of the chemical process in manufacturing. So if we're successful and we get 10 million metric tons clean hydrogen, if you assume we replace everything we're using now, that still leaves one and a half million metric tons or 15% that has to go into something else. And so uh, to your point, Ed, I mean, I just, the... <laughs> It's great to have a supply target, but the supply target is greater than the total demand today. Um, and, oh, and by the way, if we're successful in deploying more EVs, you'd probably expect that number to come down a little bit unless we're going to export refined petroleum products uh, that, we, that we're using here. We're going to export them abroad. So you're spot on with the, with the demand supply imbalance. And one thing that scares me a little bit is that we don't have an answer to that question. And you hear... A lot of utilities talking about how they're going to start blending hydrogen into the grid for gas. And from a climate perspective, terrible, uh, doesn't really get you anything. And building off of earlier conversation, we have a lot of other technologies to, to target that sector. You know, and I want to just step back for a second and say there's this, there's this tension, right? There's this tension between policy to support a new industry, right? We need to 
help grow that industry, even if it ends up being smaller than we hope or expect it to be, it's still valuable and it's required to decarbonize fully and get to our goals. So there needs to be policy support for those industries. That's intention sometimes with near-term emissions reductions, right? So what happens if, you know, Amy, if we have a Midwest hydrogen hub that's using existing nuclear and the electricity supply that's backfilling that to supply the hubs is coming from coal. That means that electrolytically produced hydrogen is really, you know, the additional electricity supply is coal. That's kind of like a worst case scenario. But arguments I find myself getting into most frequently is this tension between, well, look, if we make it too onerous, we're not going to be able to grow this industry at all and it's going to fall flat on its face. If we make it too lenient and too lax, we're not going to be able to ensure the long-term emissions reductions because people are going to sign 10, 20-year offtake agreements. You know, I think it, it's a really hard needle to thread to get it right so that you can scale the industry and also that you transition to the lower zero carbon options once that industry starts to become commercialized. Right, absolutely. And this goes exactly to the issue you alluded to earlier, which is this question of um, eligibility for tax credits. And um, as we were saying, there's this very generous package of tax credits for low carbon hydrogen uh, that was uh, legislated for in the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year. But what we haven't got yet is the details of exactly the eligibility for those, what exactly the rules are going to be, so you can know whether your particular bit of hydrogen production will be eligible for what tax credit. And as I understand the debate over that, as you say, Robbie, it goes exactly to that point about if you make the rules too restrictive, then nobody will be able to get any kind of project going. But if you make them too loose, then you'll have loads of projects getting underway that use high carbon electricity to make the hydrogen. And so you're not really getting any emissions benefit at all. And as you say, it's a, it's a hard needle to thread. And it feels like there's a lot of arguments going on about these rules, you know, at the Treasury, presumably, because I think we thought maybe they'd be out in the spring, uh, these rules. They weren't. Then it was maybe over the summer. Then we heard in the fall. Now they're saying by the end of the year, having seen how much it slipped already, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it slips again, if it even slips into next year before they actually manage to kind of work this out. And of course, while they're arguing, that causes problems um, in itself because projects get delayed. There's huge uncertainty. People don't know exactly what they should be um, committing to. It's going to put real money down at a time when they don't know what the tax status of that investment is going to be. So it is a real problem. Maybe this is just because I live in the DC metro area, but you can tell what's at stake by the fact that if you're, you know, Sunday night, you're watching the football game, the first commercial that comes on is talking about what 45V, what the tax credit, how it should be designed. And I mean, talk about a small target demographic. <laughs> that is, that My is, goodness, that's a, quite I a saw niche. It, and it but came on multiple that's times. That's incredible. Just, what alter, alternate universe am I living in where I'm getting ads for lax hydrogen credit? I think there were multiple. I think there was one for softer standards and one for stronger standards. And I just, I mean, it's like a target demographic of 100 people at most. Um, yeah. So the question is, how many people who saw that <laughs> ad even understood what it was referring I to? I just, yeah, that just shows if, you know, the amount of money that's being spent to run that ad tells you, you know, how much is at stake for the for the large companies in how Treasury interprets the rules. Yeah, absolutely. If we get ads during the Super Bowl next year, Talking about hydrogen tax credits—that's how we're really we in trouble. If, if that happens, when it's still got on until then. 
I mean, I want I want to know I want to know what comedian is going to step forward on this subject of hydrogen additionality because, of course, we saw Will Farrell and others, you know, lob into uh, the EV world uh, with quite uh, quite funny and wonderful commercials. And so now I'm wondering, like, what is the comedic potential of the subject yeah. of additionality? Well, like I remember in, Ed uh, pointed uh, out green and knives out. I mean, it's not on that specific topic, but we got uh, some comedy around hydrogen for for home uh, energy use. That was one of your free electrons earlier this year. Yeah, true. We also got a lot of comedians stepping in on crypto, of course, and putting their faces to that, which that didn't go very well for them. So perhaps no, you know, they should learn their lesson and stay out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we should wrap this up in a moment before we do, though, but just very quickly, then your thoughts on that issue. I mean, do you either, Robbie, Amy, do you have views on how the Treasury ought to resolve that? I mean, as you've been saying, Robbie, it's threading a needle. Uh, how do you hit exactly the sweet spot? Yeah, well, I'll, I'm happy to start. Amy and I may not fully agree on this, um, although maybe we will. There's often the three pillars that are discussed, which is additionality, meaning that the incremental, this is for green hydrogen specifically, that the incremental electricity is coming from all new clean sources. So not taking existing nuclear as an example. Uh, that's pillar one, additionality. Pillar two is hourly matching, which is saying that the load to supply the electrolyzers should match the output in every hour from those new clean electricity resources. And then the third pillar is deliverability, which is basically the electrolyzer. Those first two conditions should be met and the electrolyzer should be in the same geographic region, basically coming as close to a physical supply of clean electricity as possible. So that's kind of, um, and there is a lot of ink that has been spilled on these pillars and how restrictive they should be, whether or not it should be annual matching or hourly matching. But I think if the focus is on, right, it comes down to like what what exactly is the focus and the goal of this legislation and provision in the IRA? If it's emissions mitigation, those are the three pillars that have to be met. And there's a lot of modeling that's been done that shows that if you relax some of those, you actually can increase emissions. On the other hand, uh, right, we have this other piece, which is like, well, it's kind of also about growing this industry. So I've seen some proposals that talk about kind of a phased approach to doing this that gives some more lax constraints in earlier years and tighten them. I think there's probably some, you know, that might be the best option to kind of let the industry develop a little bit before the screws get turned on the tax credit. But I do think that these are each of these are really important um, elements. And I mean, energy innovation, we've done some modeling showing one, it's completely feasible, especially in the Midwest, to, to meet all of these and to be profitable as a hydrogen producer. Uh, so go check that report out if you're curious. Um, um, and also that just if you don't do these things, you can get to some, you can increase emissions, um, which also seems not necessarily aligned with the spirit of the of the legislation. So I tend personally to fall on the side of the rules are there. It's it's pretty clear, I think, in my view, in the text of the bill, what was uh, being targeted with the clean electricity tax credits and the sliding scale that uh, determines the value of the credit based on how clean the supply is, um, and that the goal was was in large part emissions mitigation alongside growing the industry. So I, I'm supportive of those three pillars. But I don't know, Amy, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, just mentioning um, one of the things that California's done with its low carbon fuel standard, they have their own people who do their own science work on life cycle analysis, uh, but they also have this pathway where a company that wants to get credit under the low carbon fuel standard 
um, can present its own scientific assessment of how the pathway it's doing um, will reduce emissions overall. Um, and then the scientific committee, you know, that that rules the particular industry or pathway in California can approve or not approve the pathway, you know, based on the science. Um, and so I question whether the treasury is set up yet to do this. I, I think that the way California's gone about it, which is, you know, I mean, I, my team, when I was at University of California, we trained people who now do that work uh, inside the California government and in other agencies. I'm happy to say that uh, one of the entities that won part of the partnerships in these hydrogen hubs are two people that I trained at University of California to do the life cycle analysis, uh, and they are doing hydrogen life cycle analysis. So I think there needs to be some kind of a structure where companies are asked to show what their plan is, and that plan has to be for emissions reductions. And then I think if we do it that way, and then there's an approval process, then the question becomes, as you're mentioning, Robbie, uh, do I have to show carbon emissions savings from day one or over an average of some period of time? Can it be phased or not be phased? And you know, I, I really feel like when you make a rule and you write it down on a piece of paper, you know, who's making that judgment whether you're complying with that rule or not to get the tax credit? I kind of like I kind of like a system where the company is having to show that they qualify. You know, when you think about it, the LNG export terminals they have to show uh, certain things to get permitted, and uh, maybe hydrogen should be the same thing, right? I have to show what my my plan is, and I have to show the actual life cycle analysis of how it's going to you know, lead to reduced emissions. Okay, so that's very interesting. It sounds like I would take a somewhat more lenient approach than either of you would, because I feel like it's it's important to get this industry off the ground, you know, even given all the caveats and reservations, it does look like it could be a potentially significant part of the shift towards net zero. And I still feel like at the moment, we're not in a position where we can rule anything out, and we have to try a load of things and see what works best. I feel like I'm not quite aligned with either of you, but I also feel like we're not going to get into that right now. We haven't got time to get at the end of it. But this is, let's put a pin in this one for another discussion because I do think it's worth going back to on that question of exactly what you need to do to get a low carbon hydrogen industry going. So before we go, though, um, free electrons, personal items that we have brought in. Amy, do you want to go first? What's yours? Well, uh, I just want to tell a story and a shout out to uh, uh, Gregory from uh, Columbia University who heard me uh, speaking excitedly to a, my postdoctoral student as walking across that campus on our way to dinner and stopped us and said, uh, your voice sounds so familiar. Are you on a famous podcast that I listen to? Uh, so I promised him that I would say, uh, yes, thank you for listening. So to Gregory and everyone like him on college campuses, uh, thank you for listening. But uh, my free electron uh, is this week is a shout out to uh, Gavin Newsom, who signed SB 253, which is new disclosure rules for corporations uh, in the state of California on how to uh, report mandatorily uh, their greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, that is really interesting. And that whole question of, of emissions and how you report them definitely seems to be in flux at the moment. A lot of new regulations uh, coming down the line. 
in terms of what companies have to say. Of course, that famous old adage, what gets measured gets managed and how it gets measured is really important. So, you know, that's definitely going to be one to watch. Uh, Robbie, what's your free electron? So I'm going to I'm going to do something similar to Amy, which is a, a quick story than something more uh, substantive. But uh, I just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking into some data on projected retirements of different power plants, and I just tweeted something out, a comment and tagged the Energy Information Administration in it. And they responded immediately and they happened to have a call for the team uh, that day and they followed up with me. They DM'd me, slid into my DMs to follow up on the question. And I just, I thought it was really cool that, uh, you know, uh, the EIA is so responsive to to folks who have questions for them. And in my past experiences, whenever we've emailed them about very technical things, they're very excited to respond. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to the good folks doing the work over there and and to suggest that if anyone has questions about their data, they, they reach out. I've always found the folks over there very friendly. And then uh, something a little bit more substantive, but uh, a lot of folks have probably been reading about this, the United Auto Workers strikes and why they're happening or not happening. And I just thought it would be really interesting quickly, and maybe we'll come back to this when there's a resolution on what happens. But, you know, the, the big three, the there's big strikes at the big three automakers, and part of it's driven by the UAW's desire to ensure that as new battery plants are created and the EV transition happens, that those jobs are unionized. Uh, Jim Farley is on the record as kind of saying that deal is being held up by that specific part of it. And so underpinning all of this is also kind of a common refrain that EVs require less uh, labor to produce than gasoline engine vehicles. But there was a really interesting article that came out last week from Heatmap, throwing some cold water on that idea and pointing to a couple of things. So first of all, if you look at the total supply chain, battery cells and packs, in addition to drivetrains and final assembly, the total number of jobs required actually can and often is higher per EV. The question though is where the where the battery cell and, and battery production uh, is happening. And then for UAW, kind of like, are those jobs unionized? Are they part of the same contract? And I think here is a really interesting area for policy discussion around what the incentives are in the IRA um, and how they're driving uh, incentives to onshore battery production and what it means for for the future of the auto industry and, and labor. So maybe short of going into that in detail, I'll just, uh, we can tease that and come back to it for a future episode. Yeah, agreed. That is a fascinating subject. As you say, great thing to talk about on a future episode. Let's definitely do that. And we'll have you back on to, to talk about it soon. My Free Electron is um, just a shameless plug, I'm afraid, from a, a new report we've got coming out from uh, Wood McKenzie. Find it on woodmac.com, our website, about the iron and steel industry and decarbonization in iron and steel. Absolutely mind-blowing number that 8% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from the iron and steel industry alone. Just that one industry is a huge contributor to global warming. And so the question of how you address that and bring those emissions down is massively important. And this report is looking at a lot of really interesting ideas for how you do that and kind of plotting a course towards net zero in iron and steel. The thing that really interested me was the point about the extent to which we should think of steel increasingly in circular economy terms. It's a product that just will have to be used and reused. The electrical furnaces that uh, make steel from scrap and from other inputs are typically much lower emitting than blast furnaces, which make kind of 
raw steel in the in the traditional way. And so it's just fascinating to think about scrap and then the quality of scrap steel becomes very important. And have you got good enough scrap to go into these electrical furnaces? And that you know, being a scrap metal dealer has never been the most glamorous occupation, right? It's been something which has been sort of seen of as, uh, as not a kind of even sometimes not entirely respectable activity, but it's something which is going to be absolutely critical as part of the energy transition becoming increasingly sophisticated and how we manage scrap is going to be vital. And it's something that policy really needs to think about. And so that, as I say, just Trump is a really interesting part of that report and a feature of how the industry is developing is this point about the value of scrap and the fact that we need to pay a much more attention to scrap. And if you think about it in circular economy terms, as it's not scrap, it's a recycled raw material that very fundamentally changes the mindset of how you view it. So I'm afraid that is we've got time for this week. Thanks very much, Amy, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks very much to you, Robbie, as well. Thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Wiggins Gilchrist. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we really appreciate your feedback. Great to hear, Amy, about you uh, meeting a listener on uh, the Columbia University campus the other day. You know, I was thinking about this. I, mean, I don't want to flatter all of our listeners, but it is absolutely true that we have a really great group of thoughtful, well-informed people who listen to this show. And of course, it, it's always nice when people say, we think the show is great and have interactions like Amy did the other day, but it's arguably, I think, even better when people say, you got that wrong, or you know, I think you've missed something here, and they make a contribution, and they say something on social media or in person or whatever it might be, and what they're saying turns out to be really insightful and well-informed and worth thinking about. And I think those contributions are incredibly valuable. They're something that I personally really value highly. So do please keep them coming. You can find us and you can find me personally on a variety of social media platforms. Meanwhile, we'll be back in two weeks' time with all the latest news and views on the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.